Good morning. Today's scripture will be in Genesis 14, 17 through 24. And please bear with me because there are a lot of big words that I don't know. <laughs> After Abram returned from defeating Kedarlomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. Then Mechlezedek, king of Salem, brought out the bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies unto your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods to yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich." I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to you, that belongs to the men who went with me, to Ener, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. This is the word of the Lord. I'd known they were going to ask my granddaughter to read the scripture this morning. I probably would have chosen another passage to... uh... I'll tell you the truth, uh, there are several of these verses that I've been saying for two or three weeks now, and I still find myself pronouncing some of the names in a different way every time. So you excuse me if I do that this morning. I love working, ministering with Keith and Ethan and Brent and Melinda because they're brilliant at taking a scripture passage and a theme and an idea and putting that together in a worship service. You may or may not have realized that as we started the first second of this service, all the way through the service up to this point, what they've been doing is laying a wonderful foundation for the sermon. For the scripture passage, and it's been in, it's been there just uh, verse by verse in song and and etc. So they make it uh, very easy uh, to serve. There are a lot of grand narratives in the Bible, grand stories, and I love grand narratives. Alabama's home uh, to some of the great great narrative writers, Harper Lee, who's in the press now uh, a lot. Uh, I love Rick Bragg. Uh, There again, great narratives, great stories. Uh, Not from Alabama, but one of my favorites is Wendell Berry, who's written the great narrative stories of the Port William Fellowship. Uh, And I, I read every word that he puts out. But let me, you already realize this, but let me remind you, that the Bible is full of great, grand narratives. People who study literature tell us that some of the finest literature ever written, religious and non-religious, is found in the scriptures. They say that the book of Jeremiah is a brilliantly written piece of literature. They say that the book of Job is a brilliantly written piece of literature. The same is true, they say, for the prologue of John, the first 18 verses 
of the first chapter of the book of John. It's just wonderful literature. And there are themes that are found in those grand narratives. Now, Baptists, most evangelical Christians, kind of zero in on the, the huge theme that's found in the Garden of Eden uh, with the fall of man and runs through uh, Calvary, Mount Calvary and the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. That certainly is a huge grand narrative that goes through Scripture. But there's another grand narrative that I want to call to your attention this morning that is extremely important and almost never looked at. There's a character in the Bible that's almost never mentioned. And I'll show you in just a few minutes. He's only mentioned, this, this uh, title is only mentioned a few times in the Bible, but I would submit to you that uh, this is one of the grandest themes, some of the grandest narrative that you will ever study. And unfortunately, there are some hard names to pronounce through this, but we're going to dive in. About three or 4,000 years ago, God found, you can read about it in uh, along about the 12th chapter of Genesis. We won't go there because I know you're very familiar with this story. God came to Abram, as he was known then, and to Sarai, his wife, as she was known then. And he chose them, that couple, to uh, carry the future of the nation that he was forming. And, and uh, they were living at the time in what's called uh, uh, Paden Haram or the Ur of Chaldees. Uh, and, and they were rich. These people were very wealthy. They owned a lot of stock, not in a stock market as such, but in terms of livestock. They had lots of people that were working for them. As far as we know, they were happy there. Abram was a, a desert lord, nomadic. Uh, probably to some extent a warlord, although we won't get into all of that, but, but he was a very wealthy person. God came to uh, Abram and Sarai, and Sarai at that point was barren. As far as they knew, she would be barren forever. She was sterile. Um, but God came to them and said, I have a special task for you. I want you to leave this place and I want you to go to a new place that I will show you. It will be uh, what we have come to know as the Holy Land or the land of Canaan. And so without going through all the details of that story, which are just tremendous, of uh, their movement, uh, let me just say that they were obedient to God and they took everything that they had, including Abram's nephew Lot, and uh, they moved from uh, the Ur of Chaldees to this land of Canaan. And they got there, and, and Abram was even more wildly successful than he had been before. His livestock uh, number was increasing on a regular basis. They were, not, they were rich before. They were richer now, just owned a lot, still living a fairly 
nomadic life at this time. Pitched lots of tents. Uh, They had lots of people who were working for them. We'll find out specifically about that in a few minutes. Uh, But they were there. Sarai is still uh, uh, barren. She had never become pregnant, even though they had tried very hard to make that happen. And Lot, the nephew, is more dissatisfied all the time. Now, this, this kid, I'll call him, not a kid at this moment, but this kid had it all in, at that time. I mean, I'm not just talking about where they were. You know, the whole region, uh, they just, they had it. Extreme wealth, and he never hit a lick at a stick. Okay? If you're from rural Alabama, you'll understand that phrase. You've heard it. Didn't hit a lick at a stick. I mean, he had it made, but he was dissatisfied. And he, he comes to Abram and he says, look, I want my own place. Uh, I don't want to live around your tents anymore. I want my place. And so Abram starts thinking about the fact that he's probably never going to have an heir through Sarai. And so he decides, okay, Lot, uh, you, just, you can have whatever you want. And he gives Lot the opportunity to pick a spot. Lot had become greedier and greedier and greedier. And Abram says to him, you pick what you want and I'll take what's left. And so Lot looks around and he sees an area that is down below the Dead Sea. And it's an area of five cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, three more. And it is more of an urban kind of an area. And it is very wealthy Uh, in in its own right. And so Lot says to Abram, I want to uh, go in with these five cities. I'm going to move uh, my belongings and go there, which he does. Uh, I'm going to put a map up for just a second, give you some idea of what we're talking about. If you see the area down here at the bottom, uh, it's, it's noted as El Paran, but down in this southern area, that's pretty much uh, the area that I'm talking about. You see Sodom there. Uh, Gomorrah is right in this area. But it was a very wealthy place because they had huge tar pits. And uh, those tar pits contained pitch. And in those days, you couldn't sail a boat or a ship anywhere without the pitch that it took to cover the, the boat so that it would float. Boats were wooden. And so these people in those five cities were just making a killing out of, this, out of the tar pits. They were hot and it bubbled and, uh, and people would come by from all over and buy the pitch that came out of those tar pits. Lots down there. Things are going pretty well at the time. But there is a mean, marauding warlord who lived up, uh, I'll put him out in this area. It's the area of uh, the old Persia, uh, Iraq, etc. He was a guy whose name was Shardolemeor. Shardolemeor. And we'll just call him Charlie for our purposes. <laughs> And uh, he, he knew about these pits. He had been attacking villages 
and uh, small cities uh, for quite a long time. He didn't want to work. He, he, he didn't want to have any industry. What his industry was, he would just go attack a city or a village and either take everything they have or he'd say to them, you keep working, but you're going to pay me a huge tax, huge tax. And so he'd been doing that for a few years, but he'd had one eye all the time down here on the tar pits. And, and he knew how much money they were worth. So he kept getting closer and closer and closer. And pretty soon, he goes down to those five cities and he gives them a wallop like they had never had before. And he takes a lot of the goods from there and he says, you're going to pay me a tax every year. And the tax that he set was onerous. Uh, it, it was a kind of tax that you just couldn't do forever. But, but those five cities went together and they said, okay. And so the first year, when the emissary came from Charlie, came down there, they gave him the money, the tax. Second year, they gave him the tax. Third year, they gave him the tax. Eleventh year, they gave him the tax. He came down for the twelfth year, and they had agreed, well, we can't do this anymore. We're running out of money. And so they said to that emissary, no more. We're not going to give you another dime. And so the emissary goes back up to uh, Charlie, up in this area, and he said, they've said they're not going to pay us another dime. They're not going to give us any more taxes. So twelfth year, not a word. Thirteenth year, Charlie comes with all of his troops. He comes down to the five cities and he starts killing everything around. And he backs those people up to the tar pits. And he pushes them a little further to the point that the people are actually out in the tar pits and boiling out there alive. And there was, scholars say he was probably about an 11-year-old boy. They picked 11 because he wasn't old enough to do battle at the time, but yet he was old enough to know what's going on. And he left, he sneaked out of the five cities, and he sneaked up the west side of the Dead Sea, and uh, he went over to the east, to this area where Abram had stayed. Abram had stayed in an area called Oaks of Mamre. Uh, and he went there and he said, my Lord, my Lord, Abram. He said, uh, the five cities are being massacred. And he said, your nephew Lot has been taken as a prisoner. Well, the Bible tells us that Abram had three... It's amazing to me the detail that's in the Bible because it says that Abram had 318 young men who left with him. And they went over to this area and they caught Charlie and the troops with all the spoils right along in there 
And Abram and his 318 men wiped Charlie and his troops out. And so they got all the goods, all the spoils that had been taken, all of the, what had been robbed from those five cities. And the king of Sodom was with them. And they started uh, talking about what you do. And that is when one warlord in that day would take over um, the goods, the goodies, uh, you would, you would uh, expect that warlord, this time being Abram, to keep a part of the goodies. And then you would negotiate how do you divide uh, the rest of the spoils to those five cities. And so that conversation was going on with the king of Sodom. It was very uh, much tradition that when uh, those negotiations were to take place, they would do it in what's called the Valley of Shaveh. It's there today, outside of Jerusalem. The Valley of uh, Shaveh, which is right there, right outside of Jerusalem. And they had decided that Abram would come uh, from this area and that the king of Sodom Sodom would come from this area and they would meet in the valley. And so they do that. Abram walks out of the east into the valley of Shaveh. The king of Sodom walks out of the west into the valley of Shaveh. And there's a presence. There's unbelievable presence. Because from the north into the valley was a presence. Have you ever felt the presence of God so strongly that you feel like you could touch it. I've talked to people who've had that kind of an experience in the presence of God and it's so strong that you could, you could just reach out and touch it. That's what's going on here. Now we don't know the person's name who came out of the, the north. All we have is a title and that title is the Melchizedek. The Melchizedek. That title means the king of righteousness. Now imagine for a moment you're Abram and you're looking at this man, the king of righteousness. And the Bible tells us, if we could pull that slide up, Stephen, that says... He's described in the Bible as the king of Salem. Salem at that time was Jerusalem, also peace, the king of peace. He's the priest of the Most High God. He's without progeny. He's without a progenitor. No mom and dad, no children. He stepped into the valley of Shaveh. And Abram does what any one of us here would do He hits his knees because it's a presence 
like no other. You know this is not the time to talk unless you were called on. That's the kind of situation that we have. Now what I find so interesting is that we don't see the title Melchizedek again until the 110th Psalm, one verse. The 110th Psalm says, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We read these words in Hebrews. Now, Genesis, Psalm 119, all the way to Hebrews, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. First tithe in the Bible. Here it is. Ten percent of all the goodies are yours. He is first by translation of his name. He's king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now what I want you to do with me for just a second, and as I want you to imagine that you're there in the Valley of the Kings. We've said all year long, it's all his. We're in the Valley of the Kings and, and uh, Melchizedek, the Melchizedek walks out of the north and you're on your knees. Can you imagine that? You're saying, Tim, that takes a lot to imagine. No, that's where you are. <laughs> that's where you are. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that is where you are this morning. That's where we're supposed to be. Melchizedek lives forever. Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 makes that very plain. We understand what's going on here. If you understand the New Testament, you understand what's going on here. And especially when you come into a room like this on Sunday morning, when you come into a worship service on Sunday morning, do you understand that you're on your knees in front of Melchizedek? That's what worship is, folks. That's hard for me because when I come to church on Sunday morning, my mind's all over the place. Boom, boom, boom. I walk across the parking lot and I do, do, boom, 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 all the way coming in here. But that's where we are. That's literally where we are. As we worship, we're in front of the Prince of Salem, the high priest. He doesn't have a father or a mother. He doesn't have a child. We're in front of him. Now, when Abraham was on his knees, I have a feeling he was trembling. Scholars talk about the mysterium tremendum. If you go to seminary, you'll hear that, hear that phrase every now and then. That's what a worship service is to contain, the mysterium tremendum, the mysterious presence of God. 
and, and our call, just like Abram, can you imagine Abram on his knees? He's not thinking about ten different things. He's thinking about one thing. This man here who has his acolyte bring out bread and wine and offers it to Abram, just like we'll receive bread and wine next Sunday. And he's thinking about the 10% gift that he's given Melchizedek. And he's thinking about who he is. It's my goal as we move through the rest of this year talking about it's all his, for me to seek God's help if, if only in worship on Sunday mornings, but I don't want to stop there. I want it to be each day, but if only in worship on Sunday mornings, I understand that I'm in the Valley of Shabbat. You read through the whole Bible, you'll understand what I'm talking about. You're there. If you're born again, you're there. You're in front of Melchizedek. And, and if you're there, you know what you're not thinking about? If you're in that presence, that mysterium, tremendum, the presence, that holy, mysterious presence, you're not thinking about, gosh, I don't like this. I don't like that. I wish they wouldn't sing that song. Now, if you have those kind of thoughts, you don't understand where you are because you're in the valley of Shabbat. Whether you understand it or not, that you might say, well, I don't understand that. Well, it's a scripture. I mean, it just, it, that's the teaching. That's where we are. We're in the valley of the kings. And we're in front of Melchizedek. You don't think about this or that. You're thinking about this great high priest this one who became the bread and the wine, who offered his life as the bread and the wine, and this one who is standing there representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I want to read a passage for you. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that this is uh, the... the, uh, uh, leaders, the Jewish leaders talking to Jesus and they are red in the face mad. Okay, they're hot. They're mad. Maybe the maddest they were in the whole New Testament. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater? Now listen to this very carefully. This is a theme, part of the grand narrative, all through. It's coming together right here. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Stay with me. So the Jews said to him, You're not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego ami, I am. The same phrase that was used by Moses when he was standing in, uh, was used by God when Moses was standing in front of the burning bush. And, and Moses said, who can I say sent me? Talking about what am I going to say to the Pharaoh? And God said, tell him, ego I me, tell him that I am sent you. It's the same phrase. Jesus is saying that he was there before Abraham. He was present at the valley of Shaveh. Read Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. You'll, you'll see that clearly. He was there at the valley of Shaveh. He's uh, seated at the right hand of God at this moment. And he's given us an opportunity almost every week to bow a knee, to offer a tithe, to receive the bread and the drink, and to worship him. So my challenge for me is to move more in that direction the rest of this year. It's all his. I have a bad habit. My bad habit is thinking about lots of different things when I should be thinking about worship. When I should not be thinking about this or that in the service, but I should be thinking about the one who's come out of the north and he's met me in this valley of uh, Salem, this valley of peace. I would challenge you to consider doing the same thing, taking the same challenge this year. Would you join me in prayer? Father, it's so hard for me, I confess, to keep my mind focused in worship. I thank you for Keith and Ethan and Brent and Melinda and for the others who lead us. I thank you for leading them, but I pray that you would forgive me for non-attention sometimes. There's no way that I would do that if I was conscious all the time of the fact that I'm in the Valley of Shabbat when I walk in here and you are present just like you were present coming from the north with Abram. Forgive me, Lord. Speak to each one of us this morning and bring us closer to you to the point that we can be really honest and transparent when we say it's all his. Forgive us for the times that we've said it and we really didn't mean it. We offer this prayer in your son's name.